everyone and welcome. My name is Rachel. And I am Andrew. And we are Picture the Scene podcast. A true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. We bring you a new episode on a weekly basis with Andrew mainly focusing on lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland. However, sometimes I like to take on the bigger, more well-known cases from time to time. As we are a true crime podcast, we must warn you that listener caution is advised. Today's case is entitled Limbs in the Lock and takes us on a trip back to the 90s and an awful murder in Scotland. It was actually inspired by a recent show I attended at the local theatre called The Makings of a Murderer, where retired detective David Swindle, known by our true crime fans as the man who brought serial killer Peter Tobin to justice, delves into the minds of some of the UK's most notorious serial killers. This particular case, he kind of touched on a little bit, and I was uh, immediately interested and wanted to find out more, so here we are. Looking forward to hearing it then, Rach. Cool. Well, before we get to it, if you do happen to like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platforms you prefer. And wherever you listen, if you have the capability, why not give us a rating and review as well? These ratings and reviews mean so much to us, not only because we love hearing from our wonderful listeners, but it also encourages new listeners to come find us and give us a try. So thank you for your ratings and reviews. We appreciate every single one of them. We do indeed. And if you like us that much that you want to support us, you can do so now for less than a small the cost of a small Americano on Patreon, with our sign-up starting as low as £1. We release bonus content every month, and we also take recommendations from our Patreon subscribers. We do indeed. Supporting our pod also means the world to us, so thank you to each and every one of you. And finally for now, the links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or by visiting patreon.com forward slash scenepod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. Indeed, Rachel. I just want our listeners to know that already we're, we are two or three minutes in and Rachel is already being quite bossy towards me. So I think it's going to be one, one of those days today. But um, but as for, and if you join our Patreon, you get our bonus episode, our latest bonus episode, Rachel. The consensus seems to be that um, our Patreon listeners think i have enjoyed my evil laugh i think <laughs> I have an evil laugh so um if you're wondering what i'm talking about well listen to our latest patreon bonus episode yep, you'll have to subscribe um and we've at, this is actually the third attempt of us recording this episode guys and the last attempt andrew had thrown in there that we were now officially back on tiktok and youtube so i feel like that should be something that we address i completely forgot about that we are officially on youtube and tiktok oh we never really left but youtube we've been releasing an episode every single week for the last like since midway through season two so they're all they're not very exciting like visual wise but you can hear us if you prefer youtube and tiktok well we do our best um we're not teenage we're not teenage girls so we're not quite tiktok savvy but we got in the high hundreds for people watching our stuff nice you can tell andrew's not salesman uh, nothing particularly visually savvy, but we do our best. Yes. Um, actually, last recording as well that obviously got canned. Um, Andrew was making some great facial expressions. Um, uh, so I think at some point we're going to have to like record our actual um, recording so that people get to see us and what we look like when we're uh, recording the show. Because I just think the listeners need to need to see some of these facial expressions, Andrew. 
I think we'll do a live one for Patreon at some point soon, but also I think we need some consensus among our listeners. I feel like I'm being bullied today by Rachel. I'm, when we finish, I'm just going to go in a corner and start crying. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow, pulling strange facial expressions. I feel bad now. I'm sorry. Forgive you, me. You should feel bad. She, she, she says she feels bad, listeners, with a huge smile on her face, so I don't believe her, but... We'll do a live one on Patreon soon. Should we commit to it now, Rachel? Yes, yeah. Since, we, since we've not planned this, it's we're recording this on the 22nd of May. We release this in June, I believe. I've got an idea. Okay, well, okay. What's your idea? Yeah, how about we have an exclusive live for our Patreon subscribers um, mid-July, and during the live, we'll do a draw of all of our subscribers on that date. And they, and some lucky people will win some merch that we've not even created yet. Some exclusive picture of the scene merch. Okay, that sounds like I'm I'm not a big fan of impromptu suggestions that are on the recording, but uh, we'll say that and I'll pop up a poll at some point soon on Patreon for the best time of day and day to actually um, do the live. Okay, cool. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get into today, how have you been since we last recorded? Well, I've been good, you know. Busy, busy, busy. But good. good. I've been she doesn't like it when I don't say sparkling people. So I've been I've been uh, slightly sparkling. Like some oh. good uh, sparkling water from Marks and Spencers. Oh, that is a fine brand of sparkling water. Other brands are available. Nice. Okay. So all that's left for me to ask is, are you ready for some true crime? Yes. Wow. Are you sure? I feel like yeah. you have to think about that. Because I was trying to think of something funny, but I couldn't think of anything funny. So okay, you really yes. you took a while. Okay. So today we're going to start the episode with an introduction to William Frederick Ian Beggs, born on the 4th of October, 1963, one of five children to parents William and Winifred Beggs, and raised in the town of Portadown in Northern Ireland. There isn't much documented about Beggs' childhood, aside from the fact he was raised in a deeply religious household and was a bit of a creepy loner type at school. By his early teens, however, he was known for showing an unhealthy interest in younger boys, something that would lead him to fleeing his home by the time he finished school, due to the rumours of his lust for boys starting to circulate. By 1982, aged just 19, he'd settled in Middlesbrough, in, in the northeast of England to commence further education. However, it wouldn't be long until he started appearing on local police database. By young boys, because you said they started in school, so they must mm. be very young then. Yeah. That's so it. younger than him, but but yeah, he was also in school. But yeah, he would like, and and by all accounts from what I read, he enjoyed like the control factor that he had over being like older than them, telling them what to do, and obviously, then started that that kind of started becoming more um, uh, concerning. Yes, I get you. Over the next five years, Beggs would be linked to fourteen horrific slashing attacks across the north of England, and as we often see with criminals, activity escalates quickly, and Beggs was no different. Only a year after graduating in 1987, 
He picked up what we believe to be his first murder victim, 28-year-old student Barry Oldham, from a local gay bar in Newcastle. Luring him back to his apartment, he'd go on to butcher Barry Oldham with a knife and a razor, trying to cut his head off and arms and legs in the process, and dumping his body in the North Yorkshire Moors. Days later, one of his college friends was watching television with Beggs when a photo fit of the suspect wanted in connection to the death flashed up on the screen. Her blood ran cold and she immediately informed the police. The same friend would go on to give evidence at the murder trial where Beggs would be found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. He was finally safe behind bars. Imagine this, Rachel. Hey, you're in, what year was this, sorry? 1987. So it's 1987, it's 30-odd it's, uh, years ago. So it's not that long, really, in years. But even then, like, attitudes towards women was a lot different than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a woman, a young woman, mm-hmm. sat with a guy who, watching TV, and suddenly, and if it comes on, well, you know it's him. Hey, you'd be, you'd be... Like for want of a better description, you'd be crapping yourself, wouldn't you? Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to like escape because it was like one of those bad horror movies. What if they try and get stop you escaping? But it's going to sit there, and what would you do? That'd be such a weird situation to be in. Yeah, and um, when people would um, joke with him about his crimes and whether he was a suspect, um, he would make comments back that would make women especially feel very uncomfortable um comments like yeah and you could be next he would never deny um his involvement in cases and i'm not saying that this happened with this particular individual um when that e-fit when that photo fit flashed up on the screen but um certainly with his other crimes uh he'd make people feel uncomfortable um when they were saying oh gosh that that guy looks like you and they they were like well you could be next you could be my next victim and like you know just just very Creepy, unsettling behaviour like that. Yeah, wow, like, what a thing to say, but, yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, carry on. Don't apologise. Following the trial, the detective responsible for for investigating the Beggs' case commented, We got lucky. We caught and arrested this man after his first murder. We've caught a serial killer in the making here. So the eagle-eyed and eared of you out there will have heard me say that he picked up his first murder victim in 1987. So you're also probably thinking, well, he got a life sentence and is in jail. So what's going on here? Well, just two years after sentencing, in 1989, Bex was actually freed on a legal technicality. As the Court of Appeal judges ruled, the trial judge had allowed the jury to hear evidence on a number of serious assaults on other men which bore a resemblance to his attack on Barry Alden. This would later be deemed prejudicial. Hence, he was a free man, regardless of guilt. And due to the double jeopardy law in the UK at the time, he could not be retried for this case. Do you know what I'm thinking, Rachel? I asked you this question before, that, oh, surely that'd be okay by the judge to do that. But but thinking about that when you said that then, and... And don't worry, people, this is roughly the space where we we stopped recording last time, so um, I'm going to stop saying I said this before. But um, nowadays, you don't they don't introduce previous crimes, do they, at all? 
And no, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing this will be one of the reasons why. Yeah, because it's deemed like yeah prejudicial towards the case, and uh, he was uh, convicted of those previous crimes. But the the obviously the prosecution are painting a picture of the um, person you know um, up um, for on the murder charges. They're painting a picture of him with past behaviour, which you know yeah. The court- the Court of Justice agreed could not be be done. That makes uh, sense. That makes sense. And well, it's not good to let someone see. The thing is, like, would he have been like? Let's say they would never have done that. Would he have been found guilty anyway? Oh, likely, yeah. And so, and so Barry's um. Blood was found all over his flat. He was seen with him leaving the bar. Like there was so much other evidence. Wow. Um, but the the judge allowed for that evidence to be entered into trial, i.e., the the previous assaults. So, um, and the judge to this day still stands by the fact that um, you know, he he should have been allowed to to allow that in court. Um, he feels like the Court of Appeal, I called them the Courts of Justice before, it's the Court of Appeal, he feels that they were overly critical on the case and, and needn't have been uh, allowing a, a murderer to walk free. Yeah, you see, actually, at first I would agree with that, but just as a point of reference, it shouldn't be, like past crime shouldn't be, they should be introduced when it comes to sentencing, but not prior to conviction. So it's just a shame that he let it in, because if he was going to be found guilty anyway, then then it's kind of the judge's fault, I would say. Well, lucky for you, that is the way of the world now. Yes, indeed. So after Beggs' release, he moved around England and Ireland, but eventually settled down in Kilmarnock, Scotland, where he found work as an estate management officer. Somehow managing to cover up his previous history and the court case, he kept it all from the public eye. But it didn't take long for his true colours to shine through. That creepy behaviour that was noted by his childhood friends was on display once again, with neighbours, years later, in his local block of flats, nicknaming him Fred West. It wasn't long until he was back to his old tricks, but this time he had infiltrated the local scouts group, making it to assistant leader by 1990, where he gained the trust of those around him and became responsible for trips and time with the young boys, aged just 11 to 16. Don't forget, by this time, he would be... Early 30s. All I can say is it's lucky. One no, of no, Sorry. Don't forget by this time he'd be in his early 20s. All I can say is it's lucky that um, it's lucky that they have DBS checks now because even if he would have been found not guilty, which he was by technicality, an enhanced DBS check, which is what he would have had to deal with kids nowadays. It doesn't just show convictions. It shows notes against on people's files. So even his conviction and overturnment would be on there. So he wouldn't be he wouldn't be near the children anyway. So at least nowadays, it shows a good thing that we have the vetting for child safety. Yeah, and don't forget he'd been like you know charged for those fourteen slashings. Oh uh, yeah, on that yeah, local police database. So it would have like shown his violence as well. Um, yeah, it took over a year for scouting chiefs to find out the truth about Beggs, following an anonymous tip-off that he'd been convicted in court of serious offences. And only less than a month later, he was also suspended from his full-time position and eventually sacked. Good. 
<laughs> Good. This turbulent time in his professional life led Beggs back to his violent, impulsive ways. He was soon out scouting bars and clubs for drunk gay men, who he would turn extremely unpleasant on after sex. And needless to say, it wasn't long before he was back in police custody in July 1991, this time for a razor attack on Brian McQuillian, a former church worker. He was charged and eventually sentenced to six years for the attack. However, he was freed early on good behaviour, despite his past convictions. And just three years after the original sentencing, he was back living in his apartment in Kilmarnock by July 1994. His neighbours, following his time in jail, had tried to have him evicted, but somehow Beggs managed to purchase his flat and actually installed security lights and tiny video cameras in the air ducts so he could keep tabs and monitor the entire street. Wow. This guy's got no shame. On, he's got like. It's so it's so odd, and like yeah. don't forget. Obviously, I'd alluded to before they'd nicknamed him Fred West. He'd have been back on that street in '94, around about the time that, um, obviously Fred was like convicted or you know caught. You, you would think, wouldn't you, if you're a sex offender, which is what he was—a sex offender, a violent sex offender, who people. Don't want they don't want you near them, mm. living near them. They know about your past. They even nickname you. They even nickname you Fred West. You think that you would do your best to go somewhere where no one knows you. You'd want to distance yourself, wouldn't yeah. you? Start fresh. Yeah. Well, but, yeah, definitely. Let's go. Yeah, I don't understand it unless he enjoyed it. He got off on people thinking he was that type of person. Yeah. Well, he obviously like fled Northern Ireland when he was in his late teens because he, he feared for his life. Um, because people essentially, like, let's not put too fine a point on it, had him marked as a, a paedophile, right? Um yeah. maybe at that point he kind of turned around and went, Never again. I'm not I'm not running away from who I am. Like just don't know, do you? No, I guess he couldn't have stood his ground in Northern Ireland, or especially it being so such a religious community, mm-hmm. whichever side you fall on, and and also such a violent place as well at that time. Yeah. Um, well, unsurprisingly, Beggs was able to once again cover up his past misdemeanours, and this time he managed to secure a placement on a postgraduate course at university also becoming a mentor for the younger students who were embarking on their university life for the first time. So by this point, Beggs was 31 years of age with over 10 separate police convictions. And yet he was able to support and be present in the UK education system. Over the next five years, he was closely monitored by local enforcement and contacted several times regarding investigations, both into murder and serious assault. And get this. Each time, he just refused to cooperate and nothing more was done. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. I don't know what Can to you say believe to it? that. I know, just like, imagine that, like, imagine. You're wanted in connection with this crime. Can you please contact us? No. No. Okay, then. Never mind. So it's above you. Pretty much. Um, however, that all stopped on the 4th of December, 1999. So, listeners, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you all to sit back, relax, and picture the scene. We're taking you back to the evening of the 4th of December, 1999. 
to the bustling town of Kilmarnock, the largest in the county of Ayrshire, with a population of just under 50,000. On this particular day, the skies were mostly cloudy but dry and the air was cool. That typical crisp weather we've all come to expect in the UK just before Christmas. With temperatures reaching highs during the day of 5 degrees Celsius, that's 41 degrees Fahrenheit, and low lows that evening of minus 1, that's 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So bearing in mind it's minus 1, it'll come as quite a surprise that Barry Wallace, aged just 18 at the time, had decided to make his way home from his work night out by foot, and on that fateful evening would be involved in a case that shocked the local community to its core. I don't think it would be a surprise. Uh, what year was this? You're joking me. It's 1999 and it's minus one. Get so a taxi I, man. So I was 18 in 1998. Oh. I, I used to, um, I don't drink anymore. When I used to drink, I used to walk from the town centre. I lived in a small Midlands town at the time. I used to walk from the town centre to home a few miles, maybe three, four miles. And when I was very drunk, which was quite often, I always used to take my top off and walk back topless, no matter how cold it was or warm. So to me, that's what? a surprise. I don't know. It's just like when I was drunk, I think it was, it helped me not throw up. I think I don't know. Actually, I don't, you know, it's like when you're drunk, you don't have really sensible thoughts, but I always used to just walk along. And no, I never used to get a taxi because I never had any money left by the end of the night. Fair enough. Fair enough. I assume you never walked up the Sunday home, Rachel. That'd be a strange thing. That's no, and I also never there. walked home. Like, that's just wild. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I mean, there's there's two things, right? I live in a very small community where the streetlights kind of go off at, like, half 11 or whatever. Really? Yeah. So it. it's not, like, particularly safe at the best of times to walk home. But also... People on the roads are just a bit nuts, especially around Christmas. Like, you get your drink drivers, don't you? So you just yeah. don't know if you're going to be, like, safe walking the dark roads when, for the sake of, like, a tenner or 15 pounds, you can get in a taxi or for three quid you can hop on a bus. So I yeah. guess, listeners, it depends who you are and where you live as to whether or not you'll be surprised by that. I, personally, am surprised. I guess it depends on if you're... If you're middle class or above or not maybe leave it out you said i'm middle class <laughs> okay no don't leave that out then no no just um you were probably a much nicer teenager than me rachel why thank you so barry wallace a shy but popular teenager was working as, as a supermarket shelf stacker and contemplating a career in the royal navy back in 1999 but on the evening of the 4th of December, after a night of heavy drinking with his work colleagues at the office Christmas party, he parted ways and sometime later his path merged with William Beggs. Barry Wallace would never be seen alive again. Whilst the exact time of Be that Beggs encountered Barry Wallace on the, on the 4th remains uncertain, he would later go on to brag about a sweet young man with whom he'd had a sexual encounter with that evening. What is indisputable is that Beggs brought the young man back to his apartment. There he brutally attacked Barry, shackling his limbs with handcuffs, striking his face, piercing his arm with a needle and subjecting him to a horrific sexual assault. The severity of this assault 
led medical experts to suggest that shock may have been the cause of Perry's death. Wow. So he drugged him or just pierced him? Yeah, no, he drugged him. And and a pattern, like something I didn't really touch on earlier, um, when he was, uh, remember the church worker that he, he was sentenced for six years in jail for attacking? Um, the church worker had kind of woken up in a in a in a daze uh he'd come around and he he felt a lot of pain in his legs and and um Beggs was essentially like hacking away at his legs trying to get to the bone um so yeah he obviously drugged his victims to sedate them to start the the assault but um but yeah some of them obviously woke up um whether that was him misdosing or you know maybe it maybe he never intended to kill and you know um yeah overdosed um in error i don't know but um yeah with this particular guy and and with with others it was a pattern of, of um him drugging them fair enough barry had put up one hell of a fight for his life one forensic specialist testified that the damage caused by the handcuffs was the most severe she'd ever seen wow after barry had died Bex proceeded to dismember his body he discarded the arms and legs in Loch Lomond and threw the head from the Troon to Belfast Ferry. Police divers on a training course on the 6th of December, so just two days later, discovered human limbs in Loch Lomond, north of Glasgow. A full-scale search then recovered more body parts in the days and weeks ahead. Wow, that's a bit of a coincidence. It's a, a great coincidence, but just Absolutely. to randomly find them. I assume they never found the head. Wow. The head was later discovered on Barassi Beach on December 15th by... Can you guess? A dog walker. A dog walker. A woman oh, this time walking her dog. Barry Wallace was only able to be laid to rest on the 29th of February 2000, 87 oh. days after he was last seen alive. Yeah, I feel... I don't... I, I'm, the older I get, the more it beggars belief how people can do such things. I don't understand how you can take pleasure from these things. And you have to, to do such things. Imagine though your son is reported missing, which his dad did like in the early hours of the next day, and limbs start turning up two days later. But you can't lay him to rest because his body is scattered all over the place. The prolonged torture that this man put the family through because of that is just like it's unnecessary that he died, but it's yeah. necessary that it it lasts eighty seven days of of you know not being able to put that body to rest and. You know, I'm I'm not sure whether Barry's family were particularly religious, but there's a process in, in grieving, isn't there, of yeah. laying the body to rest. And how many victims of crime do we hear where there's no body to be found and there's no peace for the family that's left behind? Exactly. Yeah, no, I don't think it's a religious thing or, or not. It's, you're right, it's, it's part of the process, how it's like being able to say a final goodbye. You never get over it, do you? But no. it's... It's a step in the process. Mm -hmm. Bex's apartment was searched by the police just two days after those first body parts were found on the 8th of December. His name had reportedly lit up the police database like a festive display. Bex had attempted to erase any evidence by completely redecorating his apartment and removing the carpets. However, forensic experts discovered over 20 bloodstains, including a trace of Mr. Wallace's blood on a kitchen knife found in the apartment. Wow. However, at the time of the raid, Beggs was not at home. He'd spent the night in Edinburgh after a work event. And upon hearing news of the investigation on the radio, he went on the run. 
His flight sparked an international search, culminating two weeks later when Beggs turned himself into a police station in Amsterdam. Beggs initially resisted being extradited back to Scotland to face trial, but in January 2001, so nearly a year after the search on his apartment and the police hunt for him, a team of Dutch judges determined that he should be returned to face trial for the awful crimes committed, and Beggs was finally extradited to Scotland. Whilst Beggs was on the run, the lead investigator in the case, Detective Superintendent William Prentergast of Strathclyde Police, led a team of detectives in what was described as one of the largest investigations ever conducted by the force, spanning several weeks and involving a large number of officers, forensic experts and other specialists to ensure they had a rock-solid case to bring to trial. And finally, on the 18th of September 2001, 38-year-old Beggs went on trial at the High Court in Edinburgh for the murder of Barry Wallace. Only 24 days later, the jury found him guilty and sentenced him to life in prison. After delivering their majority verdict to the court, it was revealed to the jury that Beggs was once cleared of a similar murder by appeal court judges on a technicality back in 1989. Oh, that was could have been preventable then. And but how not... good would that jury have felt? Because they didn't know yeah. that. They were trying him for that one case in isolation but knowing that he had past history yeah you're right you're right it makes me wonder i think that would have made you feel all the more like that you'd served your purpose as a jury yeah justification that you got the right answer yeah at sentencing trial judge lord osborne said having regard to the circumstances of the case in particular the seriousness of the appalling offenses involved and having regard to your previous convictions, so there's your nod, Andrew, at sentencing, this part of your sentence, which must be specified, is 20 years. But given Bex's past history, it is unlikely he will ever see freedom. Following the trial, Prentergast was credited with overseeing a thorough and meticulous investigation that ultimately led to the arrest, trial and conviction of Bex. And I wanted to put that in there because... Again, like we cover a lot of cases on Picture the Scene and we hear our fellow podcasters cover a lot of cases um, on their pods that are really well run by the police and investigation teams. But we also hear a lot of cases where the police have not done everything they could have possibly done for a watertight case. They've got issues with evidence going missing, being mishandled, you know, questions being thrown up. Um, but there was one thing that was shining through from a lot of the um, research that I did on this particular case. And it was the meticulous kind of work that uh, the detective and his team did to, in order to secure this conviction, especially when Beggs was on the run um, for the year, you know, trying to stay in Amsterdam. They had the time, I guess, to, uh, to make I sure everything so. was watertight. Like the one in New Zealand that you covered as well. Yeah. Makes me think, though, there's no way that he would have not killed between the one he got away with and this one, is there? Surely. That's really interesting that you say that. Um, there's a number of um, people that think, you know, there are more bodies in the background. Obviously, he refused to participate in the investigations of a murder victim and a couple of... Um, horrific attacks as well like he just point and point out right refused to um to corroborate so uh yeah you're absolutely right you'd think it's just logic like what we know 
logic speaking, you don't just turn it off, do you? And then turn it back on 10 years later. No, absolutely. Fully agree with you. Barry Wallace's parents, Ian, 51, and Christine, 50, along with his brother, Colin, 23, gave a moving statement outside the court. Our Barry was a normal, healthy, fun-loving teenager whose only mistake in this whole sordid episode was to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and fall prey to this monster, a mistake which cost him his life. We are glad that this devil's trail of death and destruction has finally been halted and no other innocent child or family will have to suffer in future. Isn't it awful, though, for them to have found out that it could have been prevented had he not have been let off in 89? It's awful. I mean, I hear those things and part of me thinks it'd be good for them not to hear that. Mm. But obviously, we're not in a perfect world and it's going to come out and they're going to hear it and... It's just anger and it's just, yeah. How often as well do we hear it in these cases that we cover of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? It's like so unfortunate. And if it's if it wasn't Barry Wallace, it would have been someone else. Yeah, there's a whole thing of people say you can't say in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I don't, I never understood why you can't because it's not a person's fault where they are, is it? But it still can be the wrong place at the wrong time. Doesn't mean they've done wrong. But yeah, but yeah, you're right. It's if like the one we covered, oh, I guess people won't know. But the one we covered on Patreon recently, if it wouldn't have been that victim, it would have been another victim, wouldn't it? It's... Yeah, they're they're out there with a purpose, aren't they? Yeah, to take to take a life, and uh, they'll 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 get to the their means and their end by any way. Which is why I don't think he would have just just killed, not killed again, because the way you mention it, it's. That's a sort of, it's not like, say, for example, you hear about two people getting in a fight and one punches them and the other one falls over, hits his head and dies. Mm. Like, obviously, that's not good, but that's not premeditated. And, yeah, it's more of an accidental death, isn't it? But these ones, I mean, they've obviously taken pleasure from how they've killed. So I just don't see how... I think it might take years to get to that point where they can kill, but once they kill, I don't see how they can put that, yeah, they that can back in a bottle, it. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it was said as well, I don't want to praise him at all, but it was said that Beggs was incredibly intelligent. So, you know, it wouldn't have cost him a lot of time to be thinking and making calculated moves. Um, um, you know, and obviously... Barry Wallace was very quickly identified as a missing person because he lived at home with his parents. But, um, yeah, you, you don't know what kind of victims Beggs may have gone after um, that didn't have families or homes to go to and people looking for them or watching out for them. And especially at that time when it wasn't the internet or anything like that. I yeah. guess it was internet in 99, but you know what I mean. But, yeah, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't as still, wide, yeah. The, the, Mass, like the majority of people wouldn't be reading the news on the internet, would they? They'd still be newspaper. Yeah. Rather sickeningly, Beggs has actually gone on to lodge several appeals on his conviction, um, specifically against his human rights. But he's also submitted his request to the European Court of Human Rights to award him cash compensation for the alleged delays to his trial. So he he asked for compensation of up to €16,000. For the delays that it took to get him to trial 
But just as a reminder, listeners, he caused those delays because he fled to Amsterdam and he refused to return to Scotland for the trial. Yeah, I was just thinking that. That's, 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 obviously, I'm sure these wasn't successful, were they? No. Um, yeah, he, he even had the audacity to request bail whilst the courts investigated his appeal. So I just feel like the man has zero boundaries. Um, but what must be said is that the justice system upheld its end of the bargain. And thankfully, he exhausted all of his options in appealing the initial 20-year sentence and that bid for compensation as well. Um, so they were both denied. But yeah, he'd, he'd gone right through the process. He was treated unfairly, um, unfair delays in the trial. Um, yeah, lots of time and money spent that he can't get back. Like, who does he think he is? Yeah. Um, but given it's 2023 and his sentencing was passed with a minimum term of 20 years back in 2001, he is able to apply for parole. However, given his track record, it's highly unlikely that this would ever be granted. But it does scare me to think that a parole board at some point could let this man out on the streets. Um, so he'll turn 60 just later on this year. In my opinion, still has plenty of years left in him, plenty of life left in him. Um, and, you know, has spent a 20 year stint in prison. So, you know, if he if he was to be let out, who knows what kind of um, man he would he would be. Um, and I, I know that we don't often kind of pass comment on this and, and I definitely don't say it, but I fully believe that this man deserves to remain behind bars until he dies. I, I think that that is one way to ensure that the general public is safe. Yeah, I think we uh, when I think everyone has a chance but to to be able to be released, but you have to ensure that someone is not a danger to society. Mm. And I fail to believe how with the number of convictions he's had, the way in which he's killed, and also the blatant disregard he's had for justice as well with all the appeals and stuff. I don't personally see how how can you how he would be able to display that he's not a danger anymore. And the fact that he hides bodies, like, you know, he's 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 it's not like he's a reckless criminal that goes on the rampage and can be found and tracked quite easily you know he's got past you know um evidence of like uh, disposing of, of of body parts and cleaning his flat and being methodical with things like that so yeah where do you draw the line exactly so this has been season three episode five entitled limbs in the lock so andrew what do you think of the case yeah, I did know that case. That was interesting. I'm going to, to do some research on him, I think, because I'm going to see what some of the uh, theories are about him out there because I see who he's been linked to, who he might have killed, because I don't think in any way he, he hasn't killed that. He's probably killed and we don't know. Yeah. Like, he's not being found guilty of. You know, it wasn't in the press and anything about his family. I wonder what they feel being incredibly religious. You know, he's got four siblings and parents potentially still alive, uh, or at least at the time of the crime. I wonder whether they looked, you know, and it was very well publicised case, front page of, of multiple, like, um, newspapers and, and obviously um, on television as well, news. Um, wonder whether they were surprised seeing their uh, big brother or son 
on national television. Well, by the sounds of it, they probably weren't surprised that they saw him there, but probably not happy, yeah. Okay, so for one last time, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you all to relax, to close your eyes and picture the scene. A late night drinking with work colleagues. You're happily drunk and refusing to wait for that taxi home. You quite possibly decide to walk home and take your top off in doing so. But what could possibly be the risk of that walk home? Exactly. Don't take your top off, Rachel. And don't walk home, listeners. No, because they turn the lights off at half past eleven. Who does that? What sort of place turns the lights off at half past eleven? I know we're in the trying to save some gas and electricity. Cause lots of traffic accidents. But yeah. Anyway, thank you, listeners. That's been thank you, Rachel. Love it when you do a case. I've enjoyed that one. Good. Thanks, guys. Until next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.